Today's episode is really different from anything we've ever done. I'm speaking to a physician in the UK, and his name is Dr. Sina Gaudieri. He is really cool, first of all, and has an interest in how PAs are going to shape the future of medicine. So our conversation is great. Get ready. Welcome to the Pre-PA Club Podcast. If you want to learn how to become a physician assistant, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Savannah Perry. Let's get to it. I want to thank My PA Resource and PA School Prep for sponsoring the Pre-PA Club podcast. So My PA Resource is a personal statement editing service that edits only PA school essays, only edited by PAs, and most of us have admissions experience. So I am one of the editors. Definitely check them out if you need help with your content, grammar, flow, making sure that you are on track for turning in your application. And you can use the code FUTUREPA for a discount on any of their service options. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Um, Today I have a really great interview that is very unique. So Dr. Gadiri reached out on social media And he is a dermatology resident physician, um, or the equivalent to that, in the UK. And he has done some really interesting work on studying how PAs fit into healthcare in the UK. So they're called physician associates over there, but the job looks very similar to a PA in the US. Um, We're going to talk about a little bit, but I know one thing everyone will ask is um, how kind of cross-training works. From my current understanding, as a PA in the U.S., you can go practice over in the U.K., um, but PAs in the U.K. cannot come practice in the U.S. and would have to come and complete a U.S.-based PA program and complete boards. I don't know if that will change in the future, but that's kind of the current setup. But I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation, and to be honest, it is so refreshing to talk to a doctor who is so supportive of PAs and sees just how they fit into healthcare and that there is room for everybody and that if we work together, um, the patients are the ones who benefit. So really excited for this and you can find him on Instagram. All of his information is in the description of this episode. All right, before we jump in, I just want to note that it is February, so you have a couple months till CASPA opens if you're planning on applying this cycle. Now's the time to be um, telling your letter writers that you will be requesting a letter in a couple months um, and making sure they're okay with that, working on your personal statement. Um, which next week, if you're listening to this in real time, on February 18th, we are doing a free personal statement webinar. Um, This is definitely something that you don't want to miss, and um, I'm just going to be answering lots of questions, talking about the personal statement for probably about an hour at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. If you sign up, you'll get the replay link. If you missed it, it will be up on YouTube eventually. Um, takes about a month usually for me to get all that figured out. So 
Anyway, um, check out YouTube if you've missed any of the old webinars as well. That's just youtube.com slash the PA platform. And I would love it if you could subscribe there and subscribe to the podcast if you are have been a listener for a while. Um, give us a rating, a thumbs up. That helps other people to find the podcast, find um, our YouTube videos, and find out more about the PA profession, which is the goal here. So that's coming up. Definitely want you to know about that. And then there's also a Day in the Life event coming up on February 23rd with Archanel Patel. She is one of our pre-PA coaches in Hawaii. Um, So she'll be sharing about her job as an urgent care PA. Very excited to hear from her as well. Um, So be on the lookout, especially on social media, if you follow at the PA platform for all of those things. And I think that's all my announcements. Yeah. Don't forget that you can use the code FUTUREPA for any discounts on anything on the paplatform.com, whether it's the interview guide, interview course, mock interviews, supplemental reviews, whatever. Um, And if you ever have any questions, please send them my way or anything you'd like to hear covered on the podcast. All right. Let's jump into our conversation. And I think you're going to learn so much and feel so encouraged after hearing this. Uh, my name is Dr. Sina Gadiri. I'm currently a dermatology uh, registrar in the United Kingdom. So that's kind of equivalent to a dermatology resident okay. um, in America. Um, and I've been in this present job only for about five months so far in specialized in dermatology, but I've done some work in dermatology before as well. Um, and I've spent four years as a junior doctor before that, where I had quite a lot of interactions with um, what we call physician associates here in, in the UK, but in, in, in the US you call them physician assistants, I believe. Yep. But for, for simplicity, I think we'll call it PAs on both sides. Um, so yeah, so I had a lot of interaction with PAs when I was going through my junior doctor years and they were really invaluable to help me do my job better, to provide better patient care um, and really to help the wards run smoothly where I was working. Um, and you know, I'm hoping I can bring some valuable insights uh, to this podcast today and just give you an in- flavor of what we're like over here in the UK and how it contrasts with the American system, basically. Yeah, I'm excited to hear more about that. I have worked with a couple of applicants, even though I've never had any international PAs on the podcast. I would love to if you know any, but I've worked with a couple applicants who were interviewing and applying for UK schools and they were they were British applicants. Um, and so that's been really cool because it it's a lot of it's very similar it seems and I would say there are some other countries that use PAs um Kenya has them Canada Australia New Zealand kind of have their own variety but it's a little different I think from what I've heard the UK and Canada is probably most equivalent to us being pretty much the same as we are over here in the states but I, I am really excited to hear your perspective on all of that um can you give us a little bit about just kind of your interest in medicine and and how you got into it how you decided to be a doctor i mean that's so many years ago when i started (laughs) Um, i suppose really it was kind of like at the age of 15 and 16 and i was in actually my school was kind of very competitive it was a school in leeds and i just remember most of my year we were very medically focused there was a lot of candidates who wanted to apply for medicine and think, I think there was a record number who really wanted to go to Oxbridge as well. So yeah, in the UK, like Cambridge and Oxford are really like everyone try, tries to compete to go there and they're kind of 
for obvious reasons, they've got international, uh, international acclaim. Um, but I think it was that kind of air of competition and I knew my friends were, were applying to medicine. I mean, not to say that, you know, there were so many positives about a career as a doctor uh, and in healthcare in general um, and, you know, kind of wanting to give back to society. Um, and there's just a number of positive factors which made me apply. Um, so, so then I basically applied and I went to Cambridge for six years, um, which is a long time for a degree, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I remember getting towards the end of that and I was thinking, oh, when is it, when am I actually going to finally be a doctor? I mean, it was so long. Um, but then, you know, reached the end and finished with that and kind of turned a new chapter of my life. Um, and then I kind of went up the ladder as a junior doctor, effectively. And I've worked predominantly in the, uh, the north of England. Um, so I've seen a lot of, you know, I've worked in a lot of hospitals and seen various different modes of practice. Um, and working with physician associates i've worked with a few in a, a couple of hospitals but i think even when i was a junior doctor in when i first graduated in kind of 2015 2016 physician associates were just not that heard of really and i maybe came across like one or two in yeah. a whole year um whereas now i mean there's complete you know tidal shift almost that there's in 2021 we're talking now it's um the number of graduates uh, physician associate graduates here has just absolutely kind of skyrocketed um, and I've got some, <laughs> got some figures here. I think okay. um, there's, there's going to be a tenfold growth in uh, physician associate graduates over this five-year period up until kind of 2018 to 2023. Um, so, so there's going to be a drastic growth in this. It's probably the most rapidly growing healthcare profession here in the UK um, at the moment. And I was, I was shocked when I saw those figures. And it just really emphasizes that we need to figure out, you know, how best uh, physician associates here in the UK are going to integrate with working with doctors because we're just going to have to, you know, get along and work effectively. And, you know, um, and there's so many different points of improvement that, that could happen at the moment. And, and things are still, I still say they're quite early, you know, even with this profession. It's been around since 2003 over here in the UK with PAs. And initially it was very slow. There wasn't much uptake in PAs, but just over this past five year periods um they've grown so big that we you know we, we really need to kind of think about kind of integration going forward that's interesting and that that is a huge growth is one thing we talk about over here is that there is still especially in rural areas a need for healthcare providers and that's kind of where pas were born and why the profession was created was to fill in these gaps where people needed health care and needed maintenance care too, but couldn't, there weren't enough physicians to continue that care. Is, do y'all have those same kind of needs? I think, well, here we need PAs everywhere. It's oh, not yeah. just a case of city and rural areas. Here there is, there is a need kind of overall, um, especially with doctors, the retention rates for doctors at the moment aren't that great. Um, and we do have a deficiency in a number of different specialties, especially kind of family practice or GPs over here, um, emergency medicine, acute medicine, they always have a deficiency of doctors, irrespective of whether they're in London or they're in, you know, in a rural area. Um, so, so yeah, there, there's, I think that's probably one of the reasons why PAs have grown, grown so much here as well, is that, that there is a big need, a big need for them at the moment. Okay. Um, but yeah, I did, I did notice that in America that there's a whole kind of rural thing where PAs were of you know force for social good effectively in those rural areas where there's a deficiency of of doctors and is it just a case of that doctors it's not so attractive for them working in the, the rural areas or is it everyone wants to work in a city I guess <laughs> I think it's 
a little bit of both. I think there are areas where people necessarily don't really want to live, but then those areas in general also just have such a, they still have a high population mm. and still have a lot of need because people will come. It's kind of like a central, there'll be one central location to a bunch of rural areas. Mm. So it's each little area doesn't necessarily have their own providers it's they all come to the most central so i'm i'm in a suburban area but we have patients who will drive two or three hours to see us just because we're the closest to them for because i'm a dermatology pa so um and there are lots of pas and specialties as well that's what i chose to do but yeah i mean i think I think it's more the idea of trying to get someone in those communities as much as possible to make those people's lives easier. Cause if someone has to drive three hours for care, they might put things off. They might ignore things that really need to be taken care of sooner. Yeah. And also you've got a big geographical area in the United States, don't you? So you, you will face those situations where people have to drive three hours or here in the UK, we're a bit smaller and I suppose it takes t less time in that. In yeah. Respect, yeah. Interesting. I do want to say, just starting out, I really am interested and appreciate your perspective on this. Um, in the U.S. too, there's been a little pushback from certain groups against PAs that they're coming to steal physician jobs and make physicians obsolete, which personally I don't see at all. Like I love the teamwork aspect. And even though I don't work side by side with my doctor technically i see my own patient she see her sees hers and helps me when i need her um you know that's not my goal i don't want to take her job I'm, i really want to help make her life easier by making it so that she can continue to see those complicated patients that need her expertise Whereas I'm, I, I do see complicated patients but if somebody needs her they're going to end up in her clinic and I can take some of the more simple things that um, don't take as much time or, you know, I love treating acne and it's something I've gotten really good at and I, I enjoy. So it's just interesting that you're very positive about PAs and that's kind of refreshing. So what, what made you, I guess, tell me about some of your interactions that made you really feel like PAs were valuable. I mean, <laughs> I suppose a couple of years ago, working on kind of respiratory wards and gastroenterology, um, we were really, you know, it's very, very busy. You've got very sick patients and you need people who've got expertise in doing certain procedures. For example, the PA I worked with was able to do acidic taps and acidic drains, which was invaluable. So when I was rushed off my feet, seeing like 10 patients in a, on a ward round, they could do that simultaneously. I think that's something I really appreciated. And even the, the PA who was when I was working in respiratory, um, she had a kind of nine to five job on that ward. So she would be there every day, Monday, Monday to Friday, nine to five. And so the continuity of care there was just absolutely great. And you always had a contact, like say if we were off doing nights for a couple of days, a couple of days a week, or we we're working weekends and we had a few off days, we'd know that the, the PA on the ward was nine to five, Monday to Friday. So whenever we came back to the ward, we weren't really, we didn't feel like we didn't know what was going on with the patients. They, we always had a contact in her and we could ask her, like, look, what's going on with such and such patient? And they'd really, they'd inform us very well, almost like, you know, to an extent of a doctor to stop the handover, really. So without that, I don't think, you know, the patient care would have been near as good. Um, and I think that's one of the big 
aspects is really with continuity and patient continuity. PAs have had a massive positive, massively positive role here in the UK with that. I think that's going to continue going forwards and they'll, they'll have a really important job on wards as well. Um, so I think that's kind of, that framed my mindset and it was just at the right time. So if, if I trained maybe like five years before I did, I probably wouldn't have that mindset on PAs. And it's just, it would just come to the fore when I was doing my junior doctor training there. Um, so I think that really helps. Um, and I'm just hoping that, you know, other junior doctors coming up have a similar mindset to me really. And are willing to kind of work with and not be hostile towards PAs because there's no reason to, to be that way. And I don't think that kind of threat exists where they're coming over and taking our jobs and that kind of thing. And it's ultimately, a, it's if it benefits the patient and the role is there to help support patient care, then, you know, we've got to find a way to integrate them. No, that's great. And so my husband is a doctor. He's a hospitalist. Um, mm -hmm. And it was kind of funny because I went to PA school while he went to medical school. And he had never worked with a PA until residency. So he did his whole medical training while I was working as a PA. And so I would come home and tell him what I've been doing. And he would say, oh, you do that? You do biopsies? You do excisions? And I was like, yes. What do you think I do? Or we'd be studying. And he, I knew some fact that he was studying. And he goes, you know that? And I was like, what do you think I learned? I learned medicine. And so... Um, Anyway, he found out kind of once he was on residency what PAs were because he was working with them. And now as an attending, he will work with PAs and supervise them. And it's been interesting just to see his mindset because he really just didn't know what PAs were. Like he knew I was going to school to be one, but he still didn't really understand. And kind of like you were saying, it's so helpful to him to have someone who when two patients come in at the same time who need admitted, he takes one, the PA takes one, and they can tag it and work together. And so it is, I mean, there are definitely lots of benefits there if it's the right fit and team and person and all of those things, um, for sure. Can you give a little overview about just how medicine works over there? Is it different than here? I think, um... I mean, they're similar in a way, isn't it? I suppose it's equally as long uh, from the point at which you start uh, like your degree and then graduate. I think over in America, it's, is it seven years? You have to do a pre-medical degree first and then... You have bachelor's in like whatever you want and yeah. then go to med school for four years and four then residency for... So it's seven years there, yeah. yeah. Um, and then here it's five to six years from starting med school to finishing but then you have to do so before i specialize you've got to do a certain number of junior doctors years before you enter okay. a certain specialty and it depends on what specialty it is for example op ophthalmology you only need to do a further two years after med school i believe and then you can become a training ophthalmologist whereas for dermatology it's four years so four years as a junior doctor doing kind of core medical jobs um after med school, whereas in America, I think it's a bit quicker than that. You can go straight into residency, is it? You after go, yeah, so you could go straight into a dermatology residency that's usually yeah. three or four years. Yeah. So it will end up being quite a little bit shorter, I suppose, in America towards becoming a fully fledged dermatologist than over here. Wow. Um, but these these courses, I mean, they're not going to change anytime soon because you know, with medicine, it takes ages for them to want to, you know change how degrees and you know the progression works and there'll be a lot of angry doctors chiming in if they try to try to change that but yeah. I suppose with with PAs it's something that is they can change it a bit easier because you guys are so new especially over here um so there'll be and you know 
in terms of regulations and uh, regulating bodies, that's all changing here with PAs at the moment. I mean, at the moment, their register is like a voluntary register. They haven't been officially regulated, um, but they're going to be regulated by the General Medical Council over here in due course. I think that's going to happen pretty, pretty imminently. Um, and once that happens, once they get regulation, then, you know, things will be able to progress significantly quicker, I think, for them. Interesting. So that, so yeah, so that's interesting. It's very similar, but different. Um, and then how is like from a overarching country standpoint, because we have mostly private insurance type situation with some government programs is it the same or are y'all more standardized than us um so it'll all be kind of within the umbrella of the nhs here the national health service um so pas wouldn't be working in a private capacity i wouldn't think really okay. I mean, whereas um, some doctors when they become more senior will have elements of private practice to their to how that how they work as well as working for the nhs but at the moment, I think because PAs are pretty unregulated, I, I don't think that they, they really can work privately at the moment. But it's, I suppose it's something which in the future may change with that. You may see, who knows, basically. Um, at the moment, it doesn't exist. But um, yeah, in the future, there's scope, a lot of more scope for various different PA roles. Um, and I was reading a few private news articles last night, actually, as well, with regards to, um, you know, PAs could even have jobs working as partners in GP practices, like family practices here. And more kind of senior roles in management, so that all I'm sure will be coming down the line. And I think it'll be really important for the progression of a career as a physician associate over here, because I think one of the areas which has been lacking, which has put I suppose some candidates off over here, is that what is the what is my career progression going to be when I join as a PA? Yeah. And you know you don't want to join a program and be unsure about where you're going to be in the future, or you know whether you're going to be progressing much, or whether you're going to be stuck in a certain field or or whatever. I think all that's quite developing at the moment and you know it's really important to to emphasize to PAs over here that there is a there's a number of different ways they can progress and down the line there's a number of different options open to them which you know be that management service provision medical education um all those options are open to them okay so yeah over here I mean I would say the majority of PAs do end up just kind of working but there are some of those administrative roles and of course academic in the programs and one thing I get questions about a lot that hasn't happened yet, and I don't know if it will, is so PAs from over here, I've heard can go work in the UK. Um, I don't know if that'll be forever or just as they're getting the profession started. Um, but as of right now, PAs who are trained in the UK could not come practice in the US. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Like it would be interesting if that became more standardized at some point just to make it more regular between the countries. I I, it's equally as difficult for doctors, really. I think it's very yeah. difficult for doctors over here to go and work in the US and perhaps it's slightly easier for US doctors to work over here, but we need to take a whole bunch of exams and go through you know, systems over there, US MLEs and stuff. Yeah. Um, I think with PAs, it, it's a question of them being more regulated over here first before then the, the US, I mean, if there was a bilateral agreement where the US and the UK were happy employing each other's PAs, I mean, that'd be, I think, that, you know, sharing is always good in that sense, you know, as long as you've got, you know, people willing to, to make those mechanisms happen, I think, I'm sure there'll be a way. Um, but yeah, at the moment, I think it's equally hard, it's hard generally in healthcare, because our healthcare systems are so different. It's always been easier here going to Australia or New Zealand, because okay. of similarity of healthcare system a little bit. 
Um, and yeah, US and Canada to, to a lesser extent have always been quite difficult to um, to move. But there are ways, you know, I know doctors who've moved over there as well to work and, you know, it just takes a bit longer and is a bit harder, but yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about, I, I, you wrote an article, which I'll link in the description for everyone mm. to read, actually about utilizing PAs and the importance of PAs. Can you just talk a little bit about that and also maybe how it was received and what you've done with that or how you've kind of used it in conversation or encouraging other physicians? Yeah, sure. I mean, so that article essentially was kind of like an overview article and it was, it was looking at how kind of physicians interacted with PAs over here um, and it looked at a lot of the research was based in kind of primary care or kind of GP or family practices here in the UK and a lot of the data here is with regards to how PAs have integrated has been in in, in family practices um, and in terms of the reception from the doctor side of things been mixed with uh, family doctors feeling some of them feeling that PAs have been encroaching on you know, on their turf a little bit, um, that they'd need to supervise PAs quite significantly, that they weren't sure what the kind of cost benefit of having a PA employed at their practice would be. Um, however, kind of patient satisfaction data was was reassuringly quite high and they were happy, kind of equally as happy as seeing a doctor or, or a PA in say in a family practice consultation. However, the data from kind of hospital-based PAs has actually been quite lacking. I don't know whether it's more difficult to set up a study per se in kind of hospital-based PAs. Um, maybe that's the case, you know, um, but I definitely think that there needs to be more um, hospital-centric studies to see how PAs are integrating because I've come across I've come across some consultants in hospitals who say like, what are PAs, you know, we shouldn't be having them on our team or, you know, some negative views at, at points and others are really like welcoming. And I think until we have kind of good survey data or kind of study data to, to back up what, you know, what the general consensus is, we can't, we can't hope to kind of progress from, from that aspect, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think that, you know, generally, PAs are, are becoming more well received as time is going on and you're getting more junior doctors kind of coming to the fore and becoming more senior who are more accepting that the PA role is 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 going to have to be integrated with our roles. Uh, there's also been, I mean, I think in 2019 in um, uh, in one of the junior doctor committees, there was a bit of debate actually with regards to the roles of PAs and they felt that PAs shouldn't be senior decision makers on a healthcare team. So, I mean, a senior decision maker would probably be like someone on a kind of registrar, like a specialist level and above. Um, and they felt that they shouldn't be taking rotor roles, which are similar to doctors in that sense. And it got quite heated, I suppose, at that debate. I wasn't there personally, but, um, but the transcript <laughs> got a little bit heated. Um, and it just shows that there, there still exists some kind of red lines, which doctors are a bit kind of twitchy about PAs kind of, um, passing in that sense um, but in, in my opinion we've like in rotor roles in in hospital-based care eventually I think that there's going to there's going to come a need where a PA will you know provide a lot of the you know work of what a doctor does in in in, in a hospital-based care setting and that's the fact because the demand is getting so high over here you know and the number of doctors to to you know, supply that demand is actually you know going down or staying stagnant really at the moment. Um, and you know, in other care settings, I think in Australia and America, you know, PAs can do up to eighty-five percent of what doctors do 
and those settings, which is, you know, if, if that happened over here, um, then I think we've got to accept that to some extent we've got to be flexible with our, with our rotor rolls and be willing to incorporate PAs on safe, for example, the, the care team at nighttime and that kind of thing, and not say that, you know, this is purely a, a doctor role. Um, I suppose that also leads on to one of the other points that I wanted to make. I'm not sure how many of your listeners would be aware of this, but that um, uh, PAs at the moment in the UK, we can't, they can't prescribe um, oh, test investigations, which include ionizing radiation. Oh. Um, so that is a big kind of regulatory stepping point. And that is an issue of regulation, basically, because they are working to kind of get that through towards the end of 2021. Um, because I think it's, it's key, really, for PAs to be able to prescribe independently here. Otherwise, you know, the, the system would just work so much smoother if that were the case. And that's something which is changing. But still, at the moment, that is a stumbling block and, you know, a problem really over <laughs> there. Wow. Yeah, I didn't realize that. That's, so that is nice that when y'all have regulations, though, it sounds like they're for the whole country. Hmm. Over here, everything is state-based, and that makes it really hard because I'm in Georgia, but if I move to New York or California, what I would be able to do might be different. And so there may be some instances where I can prescribe more things, but then there may be other instances where, like, if I moved to Alabama, I wouldn't be allowed to do Botox or filler. Um, even though I've been trained in it and doing it for the last six years. So it's, it's a lot of kind of red tape from each state to each state that makes it a little more complicated here as well when it comes to all Yeah, that. so here it's all, it doesn't matter. I mean, we do have states here. So when you yeah. go between county and county, your skills will be equally as transferable no matter what you do you know even if you did botox and fillers you could do that all across the uk effectively so nice. um, uh, scotland may be slightly different i'm unaware because scotland's slightly different in their, their healthcare system up there so i don't know um about there but de definitely in kind of england yeah it wouldn't matter interesting okay well that's really cool um so what what have you found makes a relationship better between like a PA and a doctor when you were working with them some what what did you find to be kind of effective or helpful to you as the physician in those situations I think number one is there's got to be good communication really doesn't it I suppose you know knowing from the start introducing yourself you know making sure you're aware of you know a little bit of the backstory of where the PAs come from or, you know, telling them, you know, your own backstory. I think that's really important. Even between doctors, we tend to, you know, when I meet new doctors, we don't always kind of introduce ourselves effectively the way we should to enable patient care to go, go forward, you know, smoothly. Um, and really kind of introducing yourself properly and establishing roles in your team is really important from the outset. And I think that's the number one thing to, to, to make sure they kind of work effectively together in the first instance. Um, and then I suppose, you know, once you've got your role set up and you know what each other can do, it becomes easier and you're kind of divvying out jobs effectively between your team and, you know, a, a PA may be more specialized in a certain area that they, they know about and they can help like a, a certain procedure, for example, which you may not be able to do. Uh, and once you've got that knowledge, it helps a lot with, with patient care and, you know, making things work. Um, another idea I had was probably more kind of conferences where PAs are welcome, like, for example, doctor type conferences and even kind of PA conferences where doctors are welcome and can, can attend and, you know, get involved. Um, and I suppose that's a kind of a whole kind of under the umbrella of healthcare pro 
allied healthcare professional conferences and not just you know being exclusively a doctor conference um and you know it's that thing i'm sure it's growing you know there'll be more more like conferences and meetings where there'll be a number of different healthcare professionals involved and i think i think that'd be really really useful um but certainly at the moment i think we're still seeing a lot of things which are just purely doctor based and pa based at the moment in the uk um the conference i presented at in december was it was good actually because a few pas turned up to ask questions and they were invited um, and the questions that they had uh, on my talk specifically were, were really important questions which need to be asked and if it was a doctor attending and they, they, they wouldn't have been able to ask the same questions from that viewpoint that the PA had. Um, mm. So how's it in the US? Are you, do you have kind of more kind of mixed conferences or are you kind of still quite separate in that sense? Um, so I would say so at my PA conferences and I tend to go to usually um, conferences but at my Durham conferences here, usually most of our speakers are doctors. So it's like 75% probably physicians and then 25% PAs as far as who's doing the lectures. Um, and we have a good amount of dermatologists who in the States are very into research and very into speaking and they end up at a lot of the conferences, yeah. which is great. And, and they're very PA friendly and, and supportive of PAs, which is also great. Um, and then, but I mean, doctors are definitely welcome in at all of our conferences. I don't think that many attend, but they're welcome. And then at the doctor conferences, so like AAD, the American Academy of Dermatology, I went to that one year and to be allowed to attend, I had to have a letter signed by my physician that they said I could come or sponsored me or something and that they were going to be in attendance too. And then technically we were supposed to only go to the same lectures, which defeats the point of both of us going to the conference because we wanted to go to different lectures so we could both learn stuff and put it together. So we ended up not really doing that. But um, so they make it a little harder. I would not say they're super PA friendly. They're still a little apprehensive about PAs and, and how they're used. So um, yeah, there's, there's still some work here to be done on that as well. Um, but yeah, I think it, it, yeah, there's a little crossover, but not as much as I would like either. <laughs> I mean, there's there's work here to be done as well, and yeah. you know the main kind of derm conferences here as well are purely are mostly doctor based, really. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of dermatologists, I think, even less so than the US, would probably not really know what a PA does over here still. And derm is its own kind of little niche specialty, and they probably have less exposure to PAs than a lot of other different specialties. So dermatologists are one one area where they they're even more. I don't want to say clueless because that sounds a bit rude, but maybe in some ways, you know, the clueless about kind of what exactly the role of a PA would be in dermatology. As only kind of, I think PAs, there's only 1.2% of PAs are in dermatology. And, you know, compare that to family practice, for example, at 25%. It's, it's going to be, it's quite niche at the moment. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's really, you know, it's important that PAs are able to do what they want to do and not just, they're not forced into one area where they don't necessarily want to be. Um, and they have the opportunity to work in lots of different specialties. Um, and that's something that kind of probably does need to be looked into. And I'm sure with regulation, that they, they will look into that a bit more. Um, 
but yeah at the moment PAs here have to maintain kind of general medical competencies I don't know if that's if it's that way in America but they all need to be able to look after medical patients here and they can't just keep up with specialist competencies so for example if they worked in dermatology they have to know kind of their the life, advanced life support, you know, working on an acute ward and know how to manage medical patients in that sense. Whereas us as a doctor, once I've gone into dermatology, for example, I can, I just need to maintain my specialist competence. I don't know if it's that way in America or such. Yeah. So we'll, I'll have to, I took general boards when I graduated from PA school and then I have to retake them every 10 years. So mine's coming up in two years where I'll have to retake. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Derm is only 3% of those boards. So I will have a lot to review and learn again. There are PAs who work here in different specialties. So I work with a, another PA in my practice and she used to be an ICU PA. And so she still picks up shifts in the ICU. So her general medical knowledge is so far above mine just because I never did that. Um, so I think it's actually really cool that y'all have to do, even as doctors, like those junior medicine years to kind of get that base and then go into specialty. I, I mean, that probably would have been wise for me, but it's really hard to get into dermatology here as a PA. So when a job opens up, you got to jump on it. And right when I graduated, that was an awesome job. So I don't Absolutely. <laughs> it's hard over here. That's one of the really? things I was going to say. So dermatology, equally in the US and the UK, they're both very difficult to get into. Yeah. Um, lots of people want to do dermatology. I mean, for obvious reasons, because, you know, it's a, it's a great specialty to work in. Um, but yeah, like it is competitive here as well. Uh, yeah, but it's so fun. So I, it's like the best specialty in my opinion. <laughs> but I mean, it's fine. Um, every other specialty is good too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> talk about dern a lot and love it so um well can you i know you said you had some tips on publishing which is not something i've ever really done is that something that you feel like you're expected to do as a doctor or you just enjoy doing or what are your it's something we're probably we are expected to do especially if we're applying for a competitive specialty and um, which is quite an academic one um you you will be assessed on your research portfolio when it comes to interviews um, and I think, you know, I think having a research portfolio, just you having some involvement in research is so useful for your you know, personal progression and, you know, appreciation of various different parts of medicine. And I think that should apply to PAs as well. And it shouldn't be thought of just being the domain of the doctor. Um, and yeah, I suppose my, my kind of main advice really is, I think what I've learned from doing this over a few years is not to give up. Um, and, you know, you will unfortunately you will get rejection from a few journals um and you just have to kind of find out a way to get past that effectively um and that involves you know, a number of different things such as working with your with with a doctor or researcher that you're working with because i've i've basically publishing is a, is a team effort and you need to you may be the first author yes but you're probably working with a few other people um in order to get your piece published um and that really helps in kind of like narrowing down where you should publish it um, finding an appropriate journal and you know there are classifications of journal there's a website called Simago which classifies all of the different journals and kind of their their rankings and you can find an appropriate journal there for your piece um, if you have written something and you think that you know you're ready to publish it um, I suppose the other kind of key tips really would be um, 
don't procrastinate. I think one of the, <laughs> the worst things I've been guilty on is kind of procrastinating and sometimes leaving it for months when I should have really been writing things up and, and really submitting it. Um, and that just really involves putting pen to paper and thinking you know, that, that initial phase of just actually writing is just the, it's the, it's the hardest part. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to get over that barrier. And it's almost a thought, it's so easy to get yourself into a thought of, nah, I don't want to publish, I, publish, I don't want to write this piece, even though it's a very good idea to do it. Um, getting over that first hurdle is really important. Once you do that, it becomes a lot easier. And then you find that the actual submission process isn't that bad. Um, and yeah, so I think that that is also a very important point. Um, and, and yeah, I think as a PA, you'd probably want to get input from doctors in your specialist area who've got an experience in publishing and or scientists as well and researchers um, and you don't want to do something on your own without someone else kind of you know checking on you and just making sure that you're okay with the whole process and things like that like even me for example I would I would always get something cross-checked by one of my peers and just make sure that you know what I'm publishing is is worthy of being published <laughs> I suppose um but yeah it's just to kind of emphasize that it's not that hard to get into and it's not something that you should be afraid of and it's not something which just only doctors should do i think nurses should be into publishing you know pas a lot of allied healthcare professionals and and not just in nursing journals in in journals which are open to doctors nurses you know anyone really um we need to have like an international kind of healthcare research community which is open to all and we don't want to kind of pigeonhole different careers and, and different healthcare professionals into different areas basically I just lo I love your outlook so much because it's so so different from a lot of people that sometimes we hear from or kind of the loud voices on social media or whatever but yeah. um, no it's great I, I think you would be awesome to work for so <laughs> all the UK peers listening whatever you're yeah, I mean, the truth is I'm working for someone else at the moment. So. Whenever you're ready for a Derm PA in years you've got left, you'll have plenty of people to choose from, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. no, I, I really do appreciate it because um, it's just, it's cool to hear the UK perspective and the physician perspective from from someone who has both worked with PAs and kind of seen a different side of things so I don't I think that's great yeah, no, absolutely yeah I mean I, I'd always be open to if you know if a PA kind of contacted me on social media or by my email which I've given out to you um, I'd always be interested in kind of helping them and with you know, if they want to get more into research or thinking about career development you know I think that as doctors as doctors we almost I, I think people have an opinion of us and we almost don't get approached as much as we should um, say so sometimes you know like student even student nurses on the ward would would be like oh no that's a doctor I don't want to go and bother him I, I wouldn't mind it if a student nurse came up to me and said I want advice on such and such or do you think this would be an, a right area for me to work in because I could probably give some you know hopefully some benefit or some advice to them which would, which would be helpful and I think yeah doctors aren't approached enough um, from that perspective for help and guidance uh, maybe social media is making things a bit easier and you know you're getting doctors on TikTok, instagram and that makes them seem more approachable doesn't it you know for doctors dancing on TikTok, you know anybody would just ask them something and they will of course have to say they can't give away kind of personal you know clinical information to, yeah. to or advice to, to no personal medical advice but that but from a professional point of view i think it's great you know if i was if i was a pa and i saw a doctor on TikTok or something and they seemed quite nice i'd be like yeah let's drop them a message and see what they're um see what their opinion or whatever is and you know just get talking basically well i i think you will definitely 
get some messages and questions um, from, from sharing this and sharing your perspective, but I'll make sure all of your social media and articles are linked and, and everyone can kind of find you and follow along on, on your process as well. I must confess that actually I don't know how big your listener base is so how many people am I talking to here <laughs> oh gosh usually the first week or so we get around 5,000 downloads wow okay yeah. and podcast <laughs> statistics are really weird they're very hard to track so mm. I don't really know how accurate those numbers are um because it's it's a very strange process the way you actually upload and track statistics on a podcast it's a lot harder right. than everything yeah. else so podcasting something which is quite new to me i haven't really done it much before and you know it's all it all seems a bit of a black art in terms of getting i'm sure it's not that difficult getting set up and everything but um yeah, I, yeah. I followed a guide like some so i have a, a podcast that i listen to and he has like a how to set up your podcast guide and so i just followed it step by step he said buy this microphone i bought the microphone use this blah 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 so i just i just did it and then um i once you have it set up it's not that bad so i can kind of plug go record do all that and it's fairly fairly straightforward but i mean we're getting more dermatology podcasts in the uk as well i think there's yeah. a dermatology uk podcast two of us so when i was working in london last year Two of our advanced uh, nurse practitioners um, will have set up a podcast um, in dermatology and they're, they're talking to doctors kind of I think once a month on average. And, you know, there are new ones popping up all along. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that even in the dermatology field here in, in, in the UK that these podcasts are, are being developed. And hopefully it's not too far away from a PA podcast being um being started in the uk as well because i'm not aware that we have one here at the moment yeah i don't um, there aren't a ton of, of pa podcasts in general there's a few that are more targeted to pa students and kind of studying and boards and stuff there's a few of those and then mine and maybe one other pre-pa i think i don't even know if they're still doing it but somebody was kind of doing one but there, yeah, there aren't a ton of PA ones here either. It's yeah, but one thing I admire is how much in the US you guys are just so on top of these things. Here in, in the UK, we're, we're behind you in terms of coming up with these podcasts and, and people being vocal about their profession in that sense, I suppose. And if, yeah, it'd be great if there were a few, a couple of really high profile PA podcasts here in the UK. I mean, that would help the profession so much, honestly. Yeah. Are there any on social media? I don't know of any PA. I'm not really aware of the, all the, because on Instagram, of course, I do my cursory searches every now and then, and all yeah. of the kind of big PA groups I've come across have been in the US. I mean, part of that makes sense because you, they've been around longer over there, but yeah. still, I mean, it's not an excuse for them not to come over here as well and for, for UK based PAs now to start yeah start these groups podcasts and all that so yeah. Yeah. well I hope, I hope they do too and i'll i'll try to look some look some up and connect with some at, at some point because um this was great i i really appreciate your perspectives 